The following message is by Pastor Brandon Dyer of Windsor Christian Fellowship. For more information on our church, visit www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. Genesis chapter 4 is where we are going to at least begin this morning. But we're going to be continuing our series on the church by addressing the subject of worship. And worship is an extremely broad subject, as most of you know. We could launch into a bunch of different veins of worship, personal worship, your personal worship on a day-to-day level between you and the Lord, or uh, your family worship, where your family gathers together around the Word and sings and prays together, or then, of course, uh, corporate worship. And we're going to focus here this morning on corporate worship. And I think of all of the subjects that we're going to look at within this series, corporate worship is probably the one where most of us have the strongest opinions. When it comes to this subject of corporate worship, so many people have so many opinions about what we should do within the service, how we should do it within the service. And Service And truthfully, it's kind of unfortunate because this whole discussion, because of, because of how anxious we get about it or how excited we get about this subject, this whole subject has been termed the worship wars. Because so many clash over exactly what we should be doing in worship or how we should be doing it. And most of these worship wars have to do with not even the whole of the service. They have to do really with the smaller portion, or one of the smaller portions of the service, and that is the singing portion. So churches go back and forth, and and we wonder, what what should we be doing for songs? What kind of songs should we be singing? How should we be using our musicians and our instruments and so forth? All of that is in this discussion, again, under that umbrella of worship wars. And different churches, of course, do different things. Many of you have been part of different churches. And some, they just have a hymnal and we sing out of a hymnal. Or others use a screen, as we do here. Some churches that you go to, there'll be the really massive rock band. And other churches you go to, it might just be a piano or an organ. There's even other churches that will simply sing psalms out of the 150 psalms within the Bible. They'll just sing psalms, and they won't even, and on purpose, they won't even have a piano or any kind of instrumentation at all. And really, it's kind of interesting as a, as a pastor to field questions from people who are interested in the church. And easily, the, one of the top three questions is always, what kind of music do you have? That's what everybody wants to know. Before they come to your church, they want to know what kind of music do you have? This question comes before, do you pray in the service? Do you preach in the service? Do you have communion in your services? Anything like that. It's always, what kind of music do you have? I get it. I love music. I have the opportunity to be a part of choirs and, and different orchestras and different music groups and all that and led music for years in the church context. But as we walk through this important subject this morning, we need to recognize that corporate worship does not equal music. So sometimes we'll walk out of a service, man, the worship was great today. We're not talking about the sermon, we're not talking about scripture reading, we're not talking about prayers. We're talking about music and music alone. But worship, corporate worship, is not just music. 
It's everything that we do together. Corporate worship is everything that we do together between the call to worship and the benediction. And this morning I want to focus on two main questions concerning worship. And we'll spend more time on the second question because I hope the answer to the first question is really obvious. But question one is this. Who do we worship? Question two, how do we worship? So first, who do we worship? And I hope that the answer is very simple. We worship God. Exodus chapter 34 says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. First Chronicles 16, Ascribe to the Lord the glory through His name. Worship, bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Psalm 86, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Even in the New Testament book of Matthew, we see where Jesus is having that confrontation with the devil. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And then Revelation 15, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So the answer is very simple. Who are we to worship? We are to worship God alone. So our corporate worship is, is, is set aside in order to do and in, in order to enact on that task. We are here to worship the Lord and to worship Him alone. The system of worship within the Old Testament was really a big deal. And God was extremely explicit in how the people of Israel were to worship. But what was the problem of the people of Israel throughout the entire Old Testament? They constantly struggled in worshiping other gods. Even though God had told them within the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What was their constant struggle? They always wanted to worship other gods. They were always pursuing other gods. You read through the Old Testament and it feels like the Israelites worship false gods more than they worship the true God. There were all kinds of, of kings who would rise up. And the, the text will say of them, they did what was right in the eyes of God. Or they did what was wrong in the eyes of God. And when the king was doing what was right, it was because they were worshipping Yahweh. They were worshipping the true God. When they were doing what was wrong, it was because they were worshipping the false gods. And over and over, God sends the prophets to the people of Israel and calls them out and says, Stop! Right? You read through those prophets and they are coming at the people of Israel because the king isn't leading the way he should. So the prophets cry out against the people. Stop pursuing these other gods. Stop following after them. This is the pattern that we see over and over within the Old Testament. But we cannot simply leave it there because that pattern is in our own lives as well. We all have hearts that are idol factories, as one theologian has called them. We are, we are made to worship Human beings were made to worship. The question is, who or what are we going to worship? We're either going to worship God or we're going to worship something else. We idolize money and things and people and homes and so many things, even, even good things, and giving our time and affections to those things that really rightly belong to God. So instead of finding our, our joy and our satisfaction and pleasure in God alone, we, we look to the gifts that God has given to us for what He can only provide. And how backwards is that? That we're looking to the gift instead of look, looking to the giver. We need to look to the giver who is supreme over all. The Bible even says that we become like what we worship. 
Psalm 115, verse 8. Those who make idols become like them. So do all who trust in them. Isn't that true? Start to reflect and become like our idols. They start to control us. And we're fashioning these idols. And we follow after these idols. We begin to look like that idol. So what is taking place of God in your life? What do you notice in your day to day that that steals and pulls your affections from God? And as worshipers of God, we are always struggling to not let other gods come before the true God. Yet we would all recognize that God alone is to be worshipped. But where things get a little fuzzy for us is in the second question that I want to look at. And that is the how. How do we worship? So I don't think any of you here would say, oh no, we're not supposed to worship God. I think you're all here because you know that that is true. That we need to come together corporately in order to worship Him. But the big question, and where a lot of this debating happens, is in the how. How are we going to worship? And I want to focus on three main building blocks as we consider this question. The first building block is worshiping God with acceptable worship. The second is worshiping God in spirit. And then the third is worshiping God in truth. And then we'll kind of flesh out the why we do what we do here at Windsor Christian Fellowship. But first, we'll look at acceptable worship. What is acceptable worship? If if there is acceptable worship, and the book of Hebrews talks about acceptable worship, then that must mean that there is unacceptable worship. Let me give you two examples, the first of which is found in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is the example of Cain and Abel. You might be thinking, if we're talking about New Testament, New Covenant worship, why are we going back to the Old Testament? Because it applies. It is all tied together. But Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So Adam and Eve, they have a couple of sons, Cain and Abel. Abel takes care of the sheep, and, and, and Cain is a gardener. And both of them bring the fruit of their labor as an offering to the Lord. And it's interesting, as we just read, it's interesting because the Lord, it says, has regard for Abel's offering, but he does not have regard for Cain's offering. I mean, and we might read that thing, wasn't that kind of unfair? A little unfair that God would accept the offering of one of the brothers, but he wouldn't accept the offering of another. I mean, both of them had worked hard. There's no doubt that Cain would have worked hard to bring forth this harvest, just as Abel had worked hard as a keeper of the sheep. Both of them are sacrificing the fruits of their labor, no doubt bringing the best that they had. But the truth is, in this situation, God sees what we cannot see, As we look at Genesis chapter 4. In fact the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 says this. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by his gifts. And through his faith though he died. 
he still speaks. And so the offering or the worship given to God must be in an able-like manner. Where we're giving our worship to God out of a heart of faith, demonstrating our righteousness. These are the offerings that are acceptable to God. The Lord desires offerings that demonstrate our faith in Him as our God. But then there's a second quick example I want you to look at. Turn over to the book of Leviticus. You might again be thinking, why are we looking in the Old Testament? Because it really provides a great foundation to why we do what we do and to look at these terrible illustrations, these, these situations where we find these examples of how not to worship. But Leviticus chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And so in this brief situation, you have Aaron, who has been set as the high priest, and his sons are priests after him. And they are very explicitly told how to worship. And Nadab and Abihu, they decide that they're going to offer this unauthorized fire that the the text says. Other versions say strange fire, or really what we could view it as is non-consecrated fire. They brought fire that the Lord, that had not been consecrated according to the command of the Lord. And because of their disobedience, God struck them dead. This is how significant worship is to God. Nadab and Abihu disobeyed the word of the Lord in regard to the fire, and they were struck down with fire for it. And a lot of times I think, since we're, we're on this side of the cross, we, we sing about the fact that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God, and we think that God just doesn't get angry over what we do anymore. Because we just, well, Jesus paid it, so we're fine. We don't have to worry about disappointing or, or disobeying God and making him angry with us. We've lost really a sense of God, like Nadab and Abihu found out, that God is a consuming fire. It's the New Testament book of Hebrews, which has so much to say concerning the finished uh, person and work of Christ on our behalf, where he says this in Hebrews chapter 12, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So again, our offering to God ought to be acceptable, and the way in which we offer our acceptable worship should be with reverence and awe. So Nadab and Abihu found out quite literally that God is a consuming fire. That God has expectations for what we do. Again, kind of like what I had mentioned last week. We just kind of assume because our hearts are in the right place. Or because uh, we're striving to be godly. Or we're, we're trying to do the right thing. That God is simply just going to accept it because our heart's in the right place. Or because we're trying But does God just accept anything that we have to offer Him? Between 10 and 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, is God just going to say, oh yeah, whatever they want to do, go ahead and do it. Is that the way it works? I'm not sure. I don't think so. Verse 29 gives us a glimpse into why we should worship God in this way. Our God is a consuming fire. And so we want to come to Him 
knowing that and understanding that. Again, there's a bit of a, a ring of Nadab and Abihu in that statement that they found out that God was a consuming fire. Let me, let me ask you, how would you approach an actual, real, consuming fire in front of you? You're in California, and those fires that shred through California, how would you approach that fire if you were going to volunteer and go help fight it? Would you go to that fire in, in a flippant way? Would you kind of go willy-nilly, or, or would you go prepared? Would you have thought through everything that you might need? And you go to that fire with the kind of respect that it deserves as something that could consume you in a second. When we come to worship, we cannot just understand God in a narrow view. Yes, God is loving. God is merciful. He is gracious. He is our Father. He is all of that. But He is also holy. And He is just. And he is great and sovereign and mighty. And he is a consuming fire. So we don't just come to him as, oh, God's our father. And he'll accept whatever we have to throw up. No, we need to understand him in light of all that he is. So that we can better worship him. So we must bring to God acceptable offerings in faith. Unlike Cain and unlike Nadab and Abihu. We need to bring these acceptable offerings in faith. And we need to worship God in a way that He is deserving, with reverence and awe, and in a way that understands Him for who He is, that He is a consuming fire. Next building block, we need to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Turn over to the Gospel of John. In John chapter 4, we find this really great exchange between Jesus and this woman. And during their conversation, it eventually drifts to the subject of worship. And the Samaritan woman, she says, well, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and your fathers worshipped on this mountain. But Jesus eventually says, it's really not going to be a matter of mountains. Really what it's a matter of is worshipping God in spirit and in truth. So John chapter 4, beginning in verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus says that worshipers, opposed to false worshipers, will worship God in spirit and in truth, and that these, kinds, these are the kinds of people that God is actually seeking to worship Him. So this certainly applies to all areas of our worship, whether it's a personal worship, private worship, or corporately. God's desire is that we worship Him in spirit and in truth. Christians are given the Spirit of God, and we are to worship God in the power of the Spirit. So this implies that we are indwelled by the Spirit, that we are genuine, true believers, and that God has taken up residence within us, and that He is guiding us into the truth. So we're to worship Him in spirit and in truth, and that Spirit is going to guide us into the truth. But what is the truth? Kind of an age-old question, right? What is truth? And I don't necessarily think that, biblically speaking, it's not necessarily what is truth, but who is truth, right? Jesus Christ says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. 
So he is all of those things. And so as we worship him in spirit and in truth, the spirit guides us to the person and the work of Christ. He guides us to the gospel. He guides us to the word himself. And so when it comes to our own corporate worship here, we want to be guided by this foundation. We want to be guided with an understanding that there is acceptable worship and that there is unacceptable worship. And that we need to worship Him acceptably in spirit and in truth. And so we want to structure our services and, our, and with our offerings and sacrifices that are acceptable to Him. Namely, we want to do what God has told us to do in worship. And so we want to offer these acceptable offerings. We want to offer Him what He wants to be offered. Again, within the Old Testament, it was very stringent, very strict in terms of what was acceptable to God. But what is acceptable to God now? Well, we want to do things in a way that is not chaotic, right? Imagine coming in here on Sunday morning and everyone's just going crazy. And it's just this big mass of people doing whatever they want to do. And everybody personally is doing what they want to do. Some people are over praying, some people are over singing, some people are over reading, some people are over here and just jumping around and dancing or whatever. It's not to be chaotic, Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians that we should do all things decently and in order. And then as we come, we want to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, as the psalmist said. So there really should be a weight to our worship services because we fear the Lord and we rejoice in the finished work of Christ on our behalf, all of which causes us to tremble before Him as we worship. So what we've looked at so far should really bring the question to our minds. Are we, as a church, worshiping God in a way that he desires to be worshipped? Does God accept our weekly worship together or does he simply accept, again, whatever we decide to do? There are some key directives, I think, within the pages of the New Testament where we try to follow here and to give credit where credit is due. These are nicely outlined within a book called The Deliberate Church by Mark Dever. But they lay out what should be done within the corporate worship service and I think what is easily found within even the pages of the New Testament. But this is what we strive for here. We read the Bible. We preach the Bible. We sing the Bible. We pray the Bible. And we see the Bible. Okay, so those five things, that's really what guides us. It's very word-centered, that we want to read, preach, pray, sing, and see the Bible. And let's explain a little bit what that means. So the Apostle Paul tells Timothy to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. So as Christians, we are to be people of the Bible. We are, as Jesus said, we are not to live by bread alone, right? We're to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we believe that the Bible is inspired, that it is God's infallible and inerrant word. We believe that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So in all that we do, we want to be very word-centered because we believe that it's the word of God that is what's going to change us. The word of God is what is going to produce faith within us. So you notice within our services that we want to begin a service with a call to worship. We want the first thing that we hear to be God's voice calling out to us from the scriptures. Like we read in Psalm 29 this morning. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. 
So God, through that call to worship, it's not just a, a dry formality that we're just going to do for fun. This is actually something that we do because God himself, through his word, is calling us to worship him, to ascribe to him all that he is worth. And it also tells us what to do, to worship him in the splendor of holiness. So his word calls us to this. And we also have a scripture reading where we take time and we want to read through different books of the Bible. So this morning we finished 1 Timothy. We want to read through these passages together. And then we close the service with a benediction where God, again, through his word, dismisses us by his word. And so really what you have here and really what you have within Psalm 29 is a conversation between God and his people. So that's what we're really seeking to accomplish, that through the word, we're having this conversation with God. So God calls us to worship, right? Come and worship me. And then we immediately sing back to him, Lord, you're you're great. Glory to God forever. You are good. You are awesome. Uh, Great is your name and so forth. And then we hear him speak to us again in the scripture reading. And then we sing back to him, uh, in Christ alone my hope is found. And then we hear him speak to us again through the preaching of the word. And then we sing back to him and we respond or we could have a, a reading and we could respond back to God for what we heard within the sermon. And then he dismisses the conversation and he blesses us. So really what we have is this going back and forth between God and his people talking back to him, this conversation that's happening through the word of God. And so all of this, what this shows, hopefully, within our services, even as you look through, even if you look at your order of worship and you have this back and forth call to worship, and then we respond, scripture reading, and respond. As we do that, hopefully what is seen is that we are centered upon the word of God within our services. Again, believing that the word is going to bring life to those who don't have spiritual life. That maybe in the scripture reading or the call to worship or the benediction, the spirit will use something in those readings to open the eyes of somebody who doesn't have faith to see. So we want to read the Bible. Next, we want to preach the Bible. Paul tells Timothy again, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. So that's really the fundamental responsibility of a pastor, is to preach the word, to teach the word to God's People. This is not something that we do just because, again, it's just something traditional that we just kind of think, oh, it's a tradition, that's why we do it. No, we do this because it is an explicit command of God. We preach the word because God knows what his children need. They need the word of God brought to them in such a way that they can understand it and digest it and begin to live according to it. So we pray, or we read the Bible, preach the Bible, next we pray the Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all the people. So we strive to pray at different points throughout our services. But really, more and more prayer time could be added with, with pastoral prayers for the people of God, with prayers of confession, where we as a church combine and we confess that we have sinned, specifically Uh, Times to pray God's word back to him in response for all that he has done for us. And then next, within our worship services, we seek to sing the Bible, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody 
to the Lord with all of your heart. I like to take this one a little literally. It'd be kind of fun to do one time. If we all come in and we address each other with psalms and hymns and spirits, it'd be like a big musical in here. We come in and we just start singing to everyone, addressing, how you doing, Mike? You know, and just kind of talking that way. But we sing and we make melody to the Lord with all of our heart, with these psalms and with these hymns and with spiritual songs. So what are we going to sing here? We're not going to come in here. We're not going to just sing the latest hit off the radio. We're going to sing what accords with psalms. And we have. We've sung psalms here together. Hymns and spiritual songs. And again, we can have a bunch of discussions on what's best in terms of uh, music style and so forth. But the content of the songs, of what we should sing, at the minimum, should be biblical. It should be true. It should be right. It should be refreshing to our souls because it comes from the Word of God. We want to be very careful in in, in singing songs that line up with Scripture and even singing Scripture itself. We've, again, had times where we've sung psalms together. But then finally, we want to see the Bible. And what does that mean? Does that mean that we just take the Bible and just kind of look at it for a little while? No, we see the Bible in baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we see the Word at work when we participate in communion together. We, 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 we also see the Bible when we have baptisms Mark Dever says this, and I thought this was a good quotation. The ordinances are the dramatic presentations of the gospel. They are the moving pictures that represent the spiritual realities of the gospel, written and directed by Jesus himself. The ordinances, then, are where we see the gospel enacted and our participation in it dramatized. They are where the word of God's promise is spoken to us in tangible form. We touch and taste the bread and wine. We feel the waters of baptism. They are means of grace instituted by Jesus that God uses to assure his people of his trustworthiness, of his gospel, and of the reality of our participation in it. So these are the things that we're striving for. We want to read and preach and see and pray and see the Bible. This is acceptable worship to God. Isn't it great to have that confidence? That when we read the Bible within our services, that it is honoring to God. When we preach the word, it is honoring. When we sing the word, it is honoring. Praying the word is honoring. When we're doing communion, that is honoring to God. There, there is so much joy in knowing that God is pleased with what we, were, we are doing. This is again why the Bible is so central to what we do here in worship. We want to hear from God. In our services. And it's not going to happen by the roof splitting open. And God having an audible voice. It's going to happen through this book. We want to hear from God in our worship services. Our worship should be a small picture really of what heaven is going to be like. The redeemed of God. Gathering together for the sole purpose of magnifying and extolling him as our king. Hearing from him as we look at his words, speaking to him as a congregation in our songs and in our prayers. I mean, truly, do do we have this sense that coming to corporate worship is an awesome privilege? I know it's easy to wake up on Sunday morning and just kind of wonder, huh? We're going to go to church today? Go to church? But it is an awesome privilege to come to the Lord. Knowing that we are doing as he has requested in our worship together. Let's come together corporately, understanding who we are worshiping. That he is God. 
That He is all of those good and glorious things as our Father and as the one who dispenses mercy and grace and that He is a consuming fire. And, and in light of all that He is, approach Him in light of that with reverence, with awe. So as we walk into church on Sunday morning, that it's not just kind of you know, seeing all of our buddies and all of our friends, but that we know that we're coming to experience and to worship God through His Word. Let's come to Him worshiping him in acceptable offerings, in spirit and in truth, compelled again by his spirit into the deeper truths that we see from his word as we worship together. Thank you for listening to this message by Brandon Dyer, pastor of Windsor Christian Fellowship in Windsor, Maine. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge them or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our church online at www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. There, you'll find sermons and other information about our church. If you have a need or would like further information, call 242-0126 or email us at wcfmaine at gmail.com. Our mailing address is Windsor Christian Fellowship, 11 Reed Road, Windsor, Maine, 04363. Windsor Christian Fellowship exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ through the evangelization of unbelievers and the edification of believers so that all might be glad in God.